please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 22 and 23. Um, it's been a long time coming, but we are now coming to the end of our sermon series that has been entitled, A Man After God's Own Heart, as we've studied the life of David. Now, I thought about playing a horrible trick on you that's happened in uh, theaters sometimes, like I remember going to watch a movie, it's been a long series of movies, and it was going to be the last movie, and then you get there and you realize they're not going to end it. They're going to, it's going to be the six-week season finale, or you have to go pay for three more movies to get to the end, whether that was the Lord of the Rings series or the, even the Marvel series. They, they, just don't, they just don't want to end the thing, right? And so um, my wife was joking with me this week, like, why don't you just draw this out for a few more weeks? And I'm like, somebody might kill me. And so, uh, um, so we're not going to do that. I'm going to try to end the series today. In 2 Samuel, as we come to the end of what Samuel wants us to see. Now, if you follow along, David is not going to die in this text. This isn't the end of really David's life, even though we have his last words. Um, 2 Samuel, the epilogue, is trying to give a memorial of David's life and his legacy as king. And what he means, the, the writer of Samuel isn't concerned about how the transfer of power happens between David and Solomon. If you want to read that... You have to go read 1 Kings 1, 2, and 3. I'm not going to deal with that at all. You can go read that. This is really, we're trying to deal with what the author of 2 Samuel wants us to know. And so as I've mentioned, in the epilogue of 2 Samuel, the last, uh, the last three chapters, he selected six episodes that form a chiasm or an X where episodes 1 and 6 go together. And in, in those two episodes we looked at two weeks ago, he wanted us to see David as judge and priest, that David is going to have a legacy of being a judge and a priest in Israel where he dealt with national crisis involving Israel's sin, where, where God's wrath came on them and, and brought droughts and also plagues. And so that was episodes 1 and 6. And then episodes 2 and 5, we looked at last week, um, we saw there where David was the general of God's armies. And there was a memorial there um, basically helping us see David as a military commander. And it memorialized the men that fought in David's armies and the mighty victories that the Lord worked through them involving the Philistines and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Amalekites. And so David, we remembered as a judge and a, as a, a, judge and a priest, He'll be remembered also as a military man of victory who brought Israel peace, um, relative peace, in their surrounding areas. And this week, we're going to be looking at episodes 3 and 4, which serve as the climax. So this is actually the, the climax of the story, even though we've already looked at both ends of the chiasm, right? This is coming to a point in the middle, and that's how... Hebrews think. We want, the, we want the climax at the end, right? We want to see happily ever after as the, as the screens close and the lights fade. But for Hebrews, they put it in the middle and go from outward in, okay? So this is the climax. So right here, um, in, the, at the very, in the very middle of this, of this uh, literary feature, I want you to notice as you're looking at chapters 22 and chapters 23, that the writer has collected two psalms for us. He's put two psalms as the climax of David's life. Though David was a good king and judge, 
And while he had led Israel's military to decisive victories, David is not intended to be remembered primarily for those accomplishments. Nor will the Uriah and Bathsheba saga and David's failures and the subsequent rebellions ultimately define his legacy as the chosen covenant king of Israel. David will be primarily remembered as a man after God's own heart. That's the point. He will be remembered as the sweet psalmist of Israel who wrote 70, over 70 psalms that he outlined for Israel and for all the coming generations the providence of God over Israel. Psalms of repentance over sin. Psalms of worship and celebration over, over the feasts of Israel. And personal psalms outlining his devotion to the Lord. That is David's legacy. All of those psalms, by the way, are still read. They're still sung. They're still memorized by Christians and Jews throughout the world today. And it's only fitting that the climax of David's life be two psalms of reflection about the Lord's work in David and Israel's life. So that's what I'm going to do. This morning, we're going to look at this. I'm going to pull out the overall themes that that David gives us about his relationship to the Lord, particularly about the truths, the truths about God that David personally knew and lived before. These psalms are meant to teach us about the God David knew and served. Because that is David's lasting legacy, is that he is pointing us to the God of all creation, to the God of all the earth, to the God who had set him as king and who had forgiven him of his sin. And so, um, as we begin, remember, I'm not going to read all of this as we go through it, I'm just going to pull out the themes. But as we begin, I also want you to note that as you look there at 2 Samuel 22, are you looking there? David's Psalm of Deliverance, that's also Psalm 18. You could flip over to Psalm 18 or 1 Samuel 22. They are the exact same thing. So the writer went and got what is considered Psalm 18 and brought it into 2 Samuel 22 as a reflection on the light of this is what David should be remembered for. Okay? So the first thing that David does in this psalm is we're going to see that all of my, all of my points will follow a similar outline, but here's the first one. David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. Number one, David wants us to see a God worthy of worship. David wants us to see that there is a God worthy of praise and worship. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says there, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Remember, this is going way back into David's early ministry, or David's early career as, as 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 a shepherd boy, running from Saul, uh, Saul, and this is what David wrote. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, And I am saved 
from my enemies. Notice that David begins this psalm with a litany of reasons, a shotgun, a staccato shotgun approach to praising God. He's giving us reasons why he is choosing to praise and worship God. And he uses primarily terms of deliverance, terms of salvation, that God is my rock, he's my refuge, my stronghold, my shield, my shelter, my protection. It is God who hedges me about and shields me from my enemies. But notice that all of those things are also very, very personal. They are very personal to David. It's not just God doing this out in the ether. This is God doing this as being the very present help of David day by day. Notice that David says that this is my God, my rock. He is the God in whom I take refuge. Whether or not my men do, whether or not those I'm leading do, whether or not anyone else does, I take refuge in God. It is David who personally calls upon the Lord. He's not waiting on a priest to do it. He's not waiting on his father to do it or his friends to do it. I will call upon the Lord. I am going to do it. It is David who recognizes that God is worthy of worship and praise. This God, David's God, the God of Israel, the God of all creation, the sovereign Lord, He's to be known. He is to be worshipped and adored and praised personally and passionately. It is only right and fitting to do so. But there's a problem. The problem is that David's words are not enough. David can't find the words to ultimately do God justice. Human language cannot fully express God's value or God's worth or God's beauty or God's glory or God's majesty or God's splendor. Words can't do it justice. But David's not going to let that keep him from trying. He's not going to let that stop him from trying to put words to the way he feels and knows and loves and adores God. He knows that he must praise the God that he loves and delights in. And I would say that we must all do the same. This is the legacy that David left. Listen, we praise, we all praise the things we love. We praise the things we love, whether that's Huntington football or Vols football, God knows why. We praise the things we love. All of us do it. It is natural, whether it is parents praising their children, whether it is, whether it is a boyfriend praising their girlfriend, whether it is whatever it is, we praise the things we love. It is the natural condition of the human heart. And so the question has to be asked, when we fail to praise God, what does that say about our hearts? What this shows us is that in David's life, he praised what he loved. God, a man after God's own heart. Listen, C.S. Lewis said this in his reflections on the psalm when he was wondering why God kept, in the psalms, it keeps bidding us to praise God. Like, is God needy? Does God need our praise? Why would God call on us to praise Him? And that's the answer. The answer is because we praise what we love. And the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so if you were to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you should praise Him with your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy 
Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. He's saying that if you don't praise it, you actually can't enjoy it. It is, a, it is, it, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. He says it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some sudden mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch. You care more about the tin can than the beautiful mountain? Look at this. And he says, to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. He says, the old catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He says, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. What this means is... I was having this conversation with some of our children earlier about singing. You can't delight in God without rejoicing in Him. And if you refuse to rejoice in Him, you are cutting yourself off from joy. You see, the end of the, end of the thing is to enjoy it and to express it. And that's what David leaves us with this picture is that there is a God that's worth glorifying. A God worth living for. Second, David leaves us with this picture that there is a God who protects his people. That there is a God who protects his people. We're going to look here at verses 5 through 7. So let me read this. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 22. He says, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. That's a lot of negative language right there. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and to my God I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. The section begins with David recounting imminent danger and destruction he has faced, whether it's from Saul or from the Philistines or from others. And again, David calls on the Lord that he's come to know. He says, I was in incredible peril, incredible danger. Through many dangers and, and toils I've come, as, as the old hymn says. And this is what David says, this is where I was. But now look at verses 8 through, th verses 8 through 13, how things change. He says, then the earth reeled and rocked after I called on the Lord. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And he rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds a gathering of water. And out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. And here, tell, here David tells us that though I was in danger and in peril, there is a God who is far more dangerous that is also involved. You see here, 
David knows that there is a God who is far more dangerous and powerful than the danger and destruction that he's faced from his enemies. And David here uses all of the poetic power of his pen. Some of you don't like poetry. That's okay. But David here bends all of the power of his pen for us to see God's incredible power in terms of what he sees in creation whether that be a tempest or a storm. Now, if you remember back through David's life, as we were watching God save David from Saul, and we were watching God save David from his, from his enemies, did, did the writer of 2 Samuel describe God moving in any of these ways? What's the answer? No. No. The writer of 2 Samuel just says God saved him. God saved him from his enemies. Didn't give us all of the poetry, because the point here is, Though we didn't see any of these descriptions in 2 Samuel, God still protected and intervened in David's life. And so that, that's what makes this sound odd to us. But th- David describes it poetically to give a sense of the awe and the wonder of God's working. Have you ever tried to put words to how God has worked in your own life? Have you ever tried to put words to how God has rescued you out of danger and preserved you through storms? I would dare say none of you can do as good a job as David. I can't either. But the point is, David is trying to show us a God who protects his people. Listen, and then all of this culminates in verses 17 through 20. Look what he says. It says, and he sent from on high, and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from the strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place and rescued me because he delighted in me. Listen, do you see this? The simple truth of David is that God acts to rescue his people. Notice how David switches from the poetical, from all the poetry describing how God was working in general out in creation to how personally God intervened for him. All those personal pronouns return that God rescued me, he brought me out, he delights in me. Listen, that truth does not change across the canon. God today still actively protects his people. He will move heaven and earth to rescue his children. He has proven that in Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not together with him freely give us all things? That Jesus says, there is none who can snatch you out of my hand. Paul says that there is nothing in this life, whether, whether height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the principle is because God moves to rescue his children. That's the God David knew. That's the God Jesus revealed to us. That's the same promise we have today. We have a God worthy of worship, a God who protects His people, and third, a God who imputes righteousness. A God who imputes or gives righteousness. Look at verses, look beginning in verse 21. He says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. 
With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Now verse 31, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. Now just as David's poetic description of God's activity sounds strange to us, if you are a lover of justification by faith, which you should be if you're a New Testament Christian, and we know that we're saved by grace through faith, and this section should strike you as maybe very strange. Do you cringe when you hear David saying this stuff? Does that make you uneasy? When they, can David really mean what he says here at the beginning, that I am righteous and I am blameworthy and I have kept myself pure? Does that make anybody else uneasy? That makes me uneasy. Has he really earned God's favor and acted righteously and blamelessly over his whole life? I mean, I could say it this way. Has David not read the last few chapters of his own life? Has he not read? This section, by the way, it, sh it shouldn't actually make you that uncomfortable. Because this section should only be uncomfortable for those that actually haven't read all of the story. Or haven't read all of David's psalms. You see, here's the issue. First, two, two issues. First... We all know that David has sinned, amen, and sinned bigly, I mean professionally, like major league, he has done it, okay? We all know David has sinned. We all know David has acted unrighteously and has been blameworthy over several issues in his life. Every fair reader knows that, and David knows that, and the author expects you to know that. Because he's told you that over the last few chapters. He didn't try to cover up any of David's blameworthy and unrighteous activity, right? But the author also expects you to know what God himself has said about David. Do you remember what God said to David through Nathan after his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah? David, uh, God says this in 2 Samuel 12, 13. The Lord has put away your sin. Don't skip that. The Lord has put away your sin. Who put it away? The Lord did. The Lord put away David's sin. So the fact here is that though the author and the reader and David remember his sin, I'm going to say that again, the author of 2 Samuel knows David's sin. David knows David's sin. We all know David's sin. The Lord does not know David's sin. Do you understand? Why? Because the Lord has cast David's sin as far as the east is from the west. He has put it out. He has covered it. David has been cleansed and has been washed. The enemy can no longer accuse David or convict him. David is simultaneously sinful and yet his sin has not been counted against him. Instead, he is counted as righteous because God has counted righteousness to him. Secondly, God, remember, in the life of David, God is the one who chose him and graciously entered into a covenant relationship with him 
for his own purposes before David ever went through the Uriah and Bathsheba chapters of his life. So all of David's life isn't so much about David's commitment to God as it is about David's, about God's commitment to David. David's life is not so much about his commitment to God as it is about God's commitment to him. And that is the story of your life. Your life is not so much about your commitment to Jesus, but about Jesus' commitment to bring every promise to fruition in your life. It will be about Him and not about you. So, it is God who has set His steadfast, hesed love on David. And all of this, by the way, is why David will write in Psalm 32, Oh my, listen to also what David says. He says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord doesn't count iniquity. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David is a sinner indeed, but he is counted as righteous because of what the Lord has done. David is a sinner. Amen? Indeed. But David is a forgiven sinner. Listen, that's the truth. Hear me. There's only two kinds of people in this world. There's only two kinds of people. One. There are sinners. And two, there are forgiven sinners. That's it. Everybody a sinner? Everybody. But the only other group are those that that have experienced forgiveness. And the Lord doesn't count iniquity against them. So this section here of this psalm is ultimately foreshadowing the gospel. It's foreshadowing the gospel. It is God alone who can forgive us of our sin and count us as righteous before Him. Not because we are actually righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But because Christ has imputed righteousness to us by faith. This is the same promise that God made to Abraham when when it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Listen, that is David's hope and that is our hope. Righteousness by faith. This is what the Apostle Paul had to finally wrap his head around when he was trying to keep the law and earn righteousness. And then Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And Paul will write in Philippians 3, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own. One that comes from the law, but one which comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness that depends on faith. David knew of a God who imputed righteousness and didn't count sins against him. And he could say, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm simultaneously blameless and blameworthy. Simultaneously sinless and sinful. And it's all because I know a God who can forgive my sin. Fourth. David also knows a God who strengthens his people. i got to go fast. Not only does God protect his people and impute righteousness, he also strengthens his people for his purposes. Look at verses 34 through 36, and notice, what, notice how the Lord works here. 
He says here, he says, he, that's the Lord, says, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set, my, set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a, bro, a bow of bronze. And then he says there um, in verse, uh, verse 36, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. Now look at verses 40 through 41. He says, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink. You made my enemies turn their backs, and those who hated me, I destroyed them. So notice that God is the primary actor in these verses. God is making David who he is. He's training David. He's giving David strength. He's equipping David. Now look at verses 38 and 39 at how the pronouns shift. It says in verse 38, he says, I, David, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them and thrust them through so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet. And then look down, uh, then look at verse 43. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth and crushed them and stamped them down like mire of the streets. Do you see that? David was only able to do what he did because of the Lord's strength. Behind every battle, think about this, this is true in your life. Behind every battle, behind every conflict, behind every victory, behind every seeming defeat is the sustaining and strengthening power of God. And this truth is found throughout the Old Testament, especially in David's Psalms. And it's critical for us to grasp that, that every battle in our lives, even when we are the ones that act in the midst of it, we have to recognize the truth that it is God who is strengthening and sustaining His people. And it's critical that we grasp that truth because first, it instills worship and thanksgiving. If it is only about you, it cannot be about God. If it's all in your power, then you should get the glory. That's the purpose, right? So first, if you grasp this truth, it should instill worship and thanksgiving. And secondly, it should produce in you humility. That you know that you only... You only do and act and move according to the Lord's grace in your life. Remember, the giver gets the praise. If God has done it in us and for us, then God should be glorified in it by us. Does that make sense to you? If God has done it in it and for us, if God has done it in us and for us, then God should be glorified in that by us, whatever it is. And by the way, that concept doesn't change when we come to the New Testament. Paul, uh, Peter says, whoever serves, let him serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That it is God who is at work strengthening his people for his purposes. And finally, i got to go quick. Notice that David gives us a God who rules over all things for his own glory. We have a God who rules over all things for his own glory. I'll give you three quick point, four quick points. First, notice in verse 50 that God will be worshipped among the nations. He says there in verse 50, David says this. He says, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. It is through the promises and covenant given to Abraham and expanded through David that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by Israel's king and the nations will come and worship God. Second, God will fulfill his covenant promises to David in verse 5 of chapter 23. He says there, For does my house not stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. 
It was God who made a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel um, 7 when God says that I will raise up an offspring after you and I will establish his throne and kingdom forever. And he says, um, my steadfast love will not depart from him. And he says that your house and kingdom shall be made sure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. God is ruling over all things to make that happen. Third, and unbeknownst to David at the time, God himself will come as king through David's line and sit on his throne through the person of Jesus Christ. And fourth, God will bring all things to their consummated end in Christ. All of history, all all the way from creation to Abraham to Moses to David, all the way to Jesus, God is working all things for his own glory and purpose. And it will all end, by the way, in Revelation, when you have every nation, tribe, and tongue coming and bowing before King Jesus, worshiping, enjoying, and delighting in Him forever, where we will finally be, all of the Bible has been about this thing, we will finally be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And all of this is what David's life is ultimately pointed towards. I want to tell you one little quick story. We went to Israel back in September and it was, it was an incredible, incredible trip. And there are things that stand out in my mind. I could talk about it for hours. But one of, the things that, one of the things that shook me to my core was we visited the tomb of David. Now, we don't know if it's really his tomb or not. We just know there's a nice big sarcophagus in this big room. It's right near the upper room in, uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the city where you could actually see the stairs where Jesus walked out of the city out to the Mount of Olives. And in this room... There, there were Jewish people in there, and we, it's a very reverent place. Everybody's being quiet. Everybody's being very hush-hush. But there, there were Jewish men and women, and they're weeping. And they're weeping, and they're, they're weeping over King David. They are longing for the days of King David to come back. They are longing for God to send them the king that, they, that was promised to them back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They're longing for it. And all I could think that whole time is that if David were standing there, he would say, do not weep over me. Do not tarry long here. Your king's not buried here. In fact, your king isn't buried at all. Why don't you walk out of this room and walk down outside of the gate and look at that hillside called Golgotha and then walk right around the corner, a very short walk to this little garden tomb and see that it is empty. You see, David would say that his king is sitting on his throne right now in heaven, awaiting, awaiting the father to say, go get my children. Everything in David's life was pointing towards that. You see, all of David's life and his rule and his reign have been an imperfect picture of the coming perfect kingdom, and that is the kingdom of Christ. David's kingdom does something in us as we look at it, It should awaken in us and stir in us a longing as God's people because that longing is still present today. Just as they over over in Israel are still longing for that, we are still longing for our king to come back. The issue is we know who our king is. It's King Jesus. And now all that longing will continue until Christ's return when he sits on the throne of David and he rules forever in righteousness and peace. And my question is, are you ready to meet that king? Have you, by repentance and faith, have your sins forgiven like David? And can you say, blessed is he whose sin the Lord does not count against him? Because that's me. 
The Lord does not count my sin against me. Aren't you glad that God does not count your sin against you in Jesus? Aren't you glad that you know who your king is? And that we, we don't await what we do not know. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Father, may we all, like David, know this God, Father, who is worthy of worship. May we know this God who protects his people. This God who imputes righteousness and forgives sin. This God who daily strengthens his people. And this God who rules over all things for his glory. And Father, may we know you most clearly through your son Jesus as you've revealed yourself. So Father, bless this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.